So we're going through Luke's Gospel, and we're well on the way towards coming to the, to the end of it. And um, I've enjoyed it. Um, we've seen some, some wonderful truths being exposed, and um, even our songs this morning, yeah, such songs full of confidence and foundation of the truth, the gospel as we know it, such stuff that stir the heart to say, this is right, this is good. I'm glad I'm here. Yes, I'm glad I'm here. Yes, full of confidence. And we have to trace back where that's all come from and in, in what we're going to do today, we, we're going to trace it back a little bit anyway. But I just want to say, at the beginning of this, John was talking about the greatest last week and he, he used a word... Um, crass was the word about the response of the, of the disciples in saying who who was the greatest among them and uh, it's strange because that word popped up when I was preparing yes, the day before yesterday, that Friday wasn't it and um, I was reading this passage through and um, it just something came like this to me you're on holy ground, mate. And I felt crass in trying to prepare a sermon. I said, what more does God need to say? What more does Jesus do? And I felt, who's in need of my comments and my words this morning? Looking at Jesus, praying, sweating as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. What more have I to say about that mighty, miraculous moment in history? The hymn writer said, "'Tis done, the great transaction's done." That was here, what we're going to look at this morning, on the Mount of Olives, in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where our weight's going to fall this morning. Yeah, our passage starts with um, the three words by Jesus, and, um, but mainly we're going to look about the Mount of Olives, and more specifically, the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, uh, or just nearby. And um, I... That's going to draw us in, I'm sure. At the end of March this year, generally Christians will, in some way, identify with what is known as the Passion or Holy Week, those days leading up to Easter. One of the practices is to follow what is called Stations of the Cross. Several years ago, we sort of worked through Easter with Mark at the Catholic Church in after evenings and something like that and I remember one evening we did and I remember Mark going round kneeling at the different pictures on the wall the stations of the cross that's a very Catholic thing to have pictures of stations of the cross in the church and, uh, but it meant so much to him as he remembered the various steps towards the cross this prayer in Gethsemane is is one of those stations, we can call it one of those stations. This is a place where something, one stops, and one looks, and one takes in 
what's happening. And in fact, you have to stop. You can't move on until you take in what's happened. So these stations of the cross, taking the journey that Jesus took from betrayal to the final crucifixion. Some of the so-called stations do differ from church to church or people to people. And we're going to read part of that journey today uh, and following it a bit earlier. But most when we celebrate communion, which we're going to do later, um, we're going to be doing a station stop, aren't we? Just remembering what Jesus did for us. We've been backed up in our songs this morning. Two Sundays ago, Steve emphasised that in the Passover supper, as he went from celebrating the Passover to Jesus taking a cup, the cup, and saying, this is the covenant of the New Testament, this is the new covenant in my blood. It actually represented something slightly different than the previous cup. The cup was saying what Jesus was going to do. And last week, John, as I said, spoke about how Jesus demonstrated real greatness in relationships and called out the lost and valueless attempts trying to serve our own personal greatness, which they were doing, who's the greatest. And he had a picture of Muhammad Ali up there and uh, in his boxing career. Um, and we saw that. This week at the Mount of Olives, let's turn to the passage, shall we, and read it. Read Luke 22. And we shall begin reading at verse 35. He's talking to his disciples and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Strange few verses. Just to briefly comment on those, that um, as believers, as we serve him, there are ways of wisdom. What's appropriate to one situation may not be appropriate in another situation. Some time ago, Steve, um, uh, speaking from Ecclesiastes, says there is a time, a time, you know, there's a season, you know. We could say there's a time to die, a time to laugh, and there's a time not to laugh. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And Jesus just guiding his disciples on a way of wisdom that we, we don't always show irresponsibility by saying, do reckless things and say, God will sort it out and God will provide. He's called us to be responsible in situations. And he sent them out on mission. And at that time, the responsibility was that they depended on him for what they need, needed, hospitality and God's provision in whatever way. But now it's changing. Now there's a time for change. And he said, what I told you then was appropriate, but now 
it's different change. So let's go on to verse 39. He, he came out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. First thing I want us to see is what happened here in the garden is a wonder to behold. We will find mixed metaphors in, in, in scripture about the suffering of Jesus, um, but also we go to the other side and see the immensity, what happened because he prayed this prayer in a moment and because he did what he did at the cross. These moments are wonder, are wonders, if you like, to behold as we look at them. We read them, very often we read them, and like Andrea said, sometimes we read things and they don't really, sometimes they don't really sink in. A sinless man battled Satan, sin, self, and temptation in a garden and lost, saying, my will not yours, be done. And the loss impacted all mankind. The second sinless man battled Satan, sin, self, and temptation in another garden and won. Not my will, but yours, be done. That was referring back to Adam in the garden. But we're looking at Jesus in the garden who changed everything. This prayer was a moment. This is when the great transaction was done. The great gift of salvation. The plan of redemption being worked out. The fact that we have today all that's been said this morning about the glorious things we have in Jesus was all bought here in these moments. It is a moment. It's a wonder to behold. And just in these few minutes, I want to ask some questions or see what the hymn writer said. Then I want to see what the prophet said. I want to see what the faithless and the careless said. What the writer to the Hebrews said. And what the message of the Bible says in those brief moments. This wonder to behold is cosmic. The very fact that the angel came from heaven to strengthen Jesus was a cosmic moment. It wasn't just a man suffering. No other man had that experience at that moment. 
an angel came from heaven and strengthened him. Different commentators have different things to say about this. But I just want to say it's what I feel. In no way did the angel strengthen him in the way that we think he strengthened him. Because what Jesus did was total 100% suffering for what we did. And the angel didn't give him any help in that. What he did do, though, when Jesus saw the angel, he was reminded, this is God's work. And I'm doing God's work. And therefore, I can't go back. You may have other ideas about it, but that's what I think. Commentators say in no way could Jesus actually have helped him. So I say, who is helping him at this moment? When he went out into the desert, we went, and after he'd been tempted in the desert, he went out in the power of the Spirit. And what he did, he did in the power of the Spirit. He healed, he helped, he guided, instructed. Where was the Holy Spirit at the moment? This is just a question, a mind-exposing question. I just want to suggest to you that Jesus was totally on his own in his humanity in what he was going to do. Not my will, but yours be done. This is a cosmic moment, but Jesus is in it. Angels can't fully understand what God's up to unless he sees it happening in his people. If we read one of the New Testament writers said that when we do things, the angels are really wanting to understand what's going on. And they don't fully understand it. Because we're the ones, the saved, the redeemed, who are actually working out his purposes. Until they see what's happening amongst us, they won't fully understand it. When they see the redeemed, when they see in Revelations, we're reminded that that's what they are really seeing the benefit of, is that people are brought and saved and redeemed. They cannot understand the grace and the mercy which we spoke about this morning. So just to say... This moment of Jesus is a wonder to behold. And it's like a station. We need to stop at it and say, he's done this for me. He did that for me. Yes, he did it for the world. What the hymn writer said, this is an old hymn, by the way. He said, behold the amazing sight. The Savior lifted high. And in that hymn, there were two questions. For whom, for whom, my heart, were all these sorrows born? And we know from Scripture, it was for me. It was for you. This is an amazing sight, what we're looking at. Then it said, why did he feel that, those piercing things in his heart? Why did he feel those sorrows? And why did he meet the various scorn from people? Why did he go through all that? And the hymn writer answers the question like this. For love of us, he bled and prayed 
and slaughter for the love of us. Now we've thought about the love this morning as we've sung those songs, the love of God which is greater far. That's what the hymn writer said. What did the prophet say? The prophet Jeremiah, in poetic language, the poetic language of Jeremiah, and we use double reference here, in the dynamic of prophecy, he's talking about Judah, the Israelites, the Jewish people, and he's looking at the demise of them as a nation, as a people, as the people of God. He's looking where they've got to, in shame and demise, and no way of helping themselves. They were lost at that time. And so Jeremiah in poetic language speaks, Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which has brought upon me, which the Lord afflicted on the day of his fierce anger. That's a double reference prophecy because it's speaking, the, the prophet's speaking about his people and their lostness. But these are also words which refer to what Jesus was going to do and how it's going to be for him. And the question is asked, Is it nothing to you who pass by and see what Jesus has done for us? Is it nothing? And to many around us today, it is nothing. Nothing that Jesus should go and pray for the sin of the world and pray that he would do the Father's will and go to the cross and suffer there. Is it nothing? Praise God, this morning it's something to us, what Jesus did for us. It's, it's our value. It's our eternity. It's what we see Jesus doing for us. Look and see if there's any sorrow, my, my sorrow. And so we look at Jesus. He called himself a worm in prophetic language at some stage. I'm a worm and no man. Jesus, the prophet's looking within, in words of Jesus. I'm a worm and no man in this situation. And as John read from last week, he became obedient to the cross, even the death of the cross. So from those passing by, and he calls out, is it nothing to you who pass by? What the faithless and the careless said, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, we read that people passed by wagging their heads and saying to themselves, he saved others himself, he cannot save. That's the words of the faithless and the careless. They were passing by and it was nothing to them. God make it something to us. Holy Spirit, make it something to us while he was hanging on that cross. That's the words of the faithless and the careless. Let's look at what the writer said 
writer to the Hebrews said, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries, tears, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Words of hope. There it is. There's the faith to all who obey him. And we must ask ourselves again, are we obedient to him? We've seen Jesus being obedient to his father. But he is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The call goes out again this morning, and I don't know everybody in this room. But the message is still the same. The opportunity still remains. We have this opportunity to turn to him and obey him, receive him, trust in him, live discipled lives for him. So what is the overall message of the Bible? What does it say? The Bible makes the case that we live in a hopeless world. Hope in the sense that the future has no attraction for anyone looking for meaning in this world. So if you talk to many people, you can talk them through life. I think there's this uh, I seem to remember a story in a, in a little pamphlet called Emergency Post years ago, and this guy was at work, and this Christian worker came up to him and he said, uh, what, what are you going to do when you finish work? Well, he said, I've got a bit of money saved up. He said, um, I'm going to retire. Oh, he said, what can happen when you reach retirement? Well, I'm going to join myself. I'm going to go here, there, and everywhere and um, spend my money, just enjoy myself. And he said, yeah, and when that's come to them, what are you going to do then? Well, he said, I don't suppose I'll have enough strength to do anything more then. He said, I'll have to move house and go into care or something like that. I'll have someone to look after me. And um, he said, yeah. And then what are you going to do? Hmm. What are you going to do then? Well, I said, I should die like anybody else. Yeah? And he said, what's going to happen then? What's going to happen then? We have to think about an eternal future. We have to. And we need to be taken beyond this world for meaning. The Bible, the case the Bible raises is that we live in a hopeless world that doesn't provide an answer to that only in Jesus. That's what the Bible says. So the Bible also makes the case that God has provided a way which can be appropriated through Jesus. In fact, the Bible goes on to say that he is the answer to this great need in this eternal cosmos. 
he is the one we're worshipping today. He is the one we're celebrating. And we're rejoicing because of what he's done for us. So the Bible also says, there is no peace for the wicked. There's no peace for the wicked. So when are we going to find peace then? This is a troubled world. And I'm sure Bishop Benson has had trouble this morning. Um, and we've had trouble. We all have trouble in the week. We're a people of trouble. We're born to trouble. Did you know that? That's what Job said, I think. You're born to trouble. And yeah, we will have trouble. But where's the peace? Where's that which can overcome our emotional status of being fearful, being frightened? feeling frustrated. And come the end of the day, what's, what's there for us? Well, it's going to be Jesus. Because he made peace through the blood of the cross. So it's just not an event. You see, there are other things going on. He made peace through the blood of his cross. And although that's not initially talking about the peace we're experiencing here, it comes from the fact that Jesus has paid for something and that's our relationship with God is at peace. We're not separated from him. We're not distanced from him. Jesus bridges that gap. He's made peace. He did it through the blood of the cross. And because of that, the great gift of the Holy Spirit is to experience that peace. The writer in the New Testament says, the peace which passes all understanding. What is that then? That's supernatural. Because you can't find it anywhere else, only in Jesus. You can't go to the doctor and say, I want a tablet for peace today. The peace which sets our lives at peace and gives us confidence and settles our relationship with God has been bought by Jesus at the cross. This prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane just mirrors all that he's going to achieve at the cross. In the prayer, the great transaction was done. On the cross, it was completed. Because Jesus said, it is finished. And he cried that out. It was a mighty cry. It's finished. No more to do. And that in itself should give us peace. Because there's nothing to pay back. The other thing we read about forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says as well. Without the shedding of blood, there's no answer to this sin question, this brokenness, this fallen world. There's no answer to it. Jesus is unique in the salvation he's provided for us because no one else can do it. He backed that up by saying the as far as in the Jewish context, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. They ca cannot do it. It covers it over. But the blood of Jesus Christ, there is remission for sin. It's blown away, taken away. And the power of death. I think it's still pretty obvious that death reigns. You know, the gospel, the wonderful message, the wonderful fulfillment of what Jesus has done for us is that he's provided eternal life. 
Now that, that, that life, it trumps physical life because it actually brings back the real person. It brings back the real person in relationship with God. And that's what God wants. And at the end of Revelation, we see that God shall dwell with his people. He said, I will be their God. And that's an amazing thing in itself. And it says, they will be my people. Now, that's a supernatural relationship because we can keep half the relationship, but we can't keep the other half. And that's the peace we're talking about. Jesus has brought us back into a wonderful presence and relationship with God, which is indestructible, unmovable. So wonderful is the hope that we have in the end. And I finish with this. Once in the end of the age has he appeared to put away sin. That all happened here in these moments. And we cannot do anything else but rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. The hope, the life, the greatness, the wonder of eternity with him is just so amazing. Let us praise God and continue to remember him and as we celebrate in these moments.